contact, making contact, making, making contact. I'm Anita Johnson, this week on Making Contact. I was a good white person. I was a do-gooder. To be white in this country is to be encapsulated in this social milieu, this realm that not only allows denial of the issue of racism, but really mandates denial. I empathize with people of color. I understood the history. What gets hidden is our fear. What gets hidden is our guilt. This country was built on the backs of indigenous peoples, on the backs of slaves and on the backs of Chinese immigrant labor. And we see the same pattern continuing today. I have to know this history because this history is within me. The shame is too deep to look at. Please don't make me look at this. We talk about it as something that happened in the past. Everyone said we don't have a race problem in America anymore. And it festered until the LA riots. And then everyone said, oh, maybe we do have a race problem. Walking down the street, walking in a bank, going to look for a house, buy a car. I got the mask of whiteness. The advantage is always there. We mean well, and yet we don't believe that we have any more work to do on ourselves. We cease looking at ourselves. But Audre Lorde talks about it as the painful and necessary experience of excavating the truth about racism. Today on Making Contact, we present the film Mirrors of Privilege. The film takes us on the transformational journey of white men and women who overcame issues of unconscious bias and entitlement. Producer Dr. Shakti Butler explores what is required to move through stages of denial to awareness to making a solid commitment to end racial injustice. I grew up in a household hearing racial slurs where my mom would correct my father and say, we don't, you know, that's, that's not a nice thing to say you know, about those people. My father had actually been very close with an Asian American family. Their family was interned during World War II, and my father had helped to protect his house along with a lot of other friends. But still, I heard comments about, you know, the Japs. My parents spoke oftentimes in racist ways. They used the N-word often. When I was young, I really didn't know what that meant. But I sort of got that I was supposed to stay away from people of color, particularly black people, that they were going to take something from me and they were going to hurt me in some way. My first exposure to what I think of as outright racism uh, came from my grandmother when I was perhaps six, seven, or eight. We had driven to visit her in Pennsylvania. And at the end of our visit, I ran into the kitchen to kiss my grandmother's cook, Bessie, goodbye. Give me some sugar. I loved Bessie. Then I ran into the parlor and kissed my grandmother goodbye. And she shrieked at me in a voice I had never heard before. And she said, I bet you kissed me with the same little old lip you kissed Bessie. Mm. I never touched Bessie again. My best friend is Chinese American, and we were both in a theater performance for our high school of South Pacific. And 
somehow I had gotten the stand-in role for Mary, and um, my friend was cast as sort of an island girl extra. And in one of the rehearsals, I was standing in the back of the theater, and the lights were dim, and the teacher was there, and she was saying to these extras who were the island girls to kind of titter and to say the word french fries but with an accent and she singled out my friend and my friend said french fries and she said no come on you know what i mean say flinch flies and my friend i saw her eyebrows go up and i saw her say french fries and there was a big pause and this teacher persisted and she said no say flinch flies i was so far away from her the distance between us with that auditorium and the dark light and the bright light shining on her i have such a vivid recollection of that because i wanted to be able to just stop it all magically um it was so hideous and she said again french fries and then she ran off the stage I had some adopted cousins on my dad's side and two of them were African-American and the rest of my cousins were white. I didn't necessarily know the significance of that until actually when I moved to Texas and one of my cousins came to visit us and one of my girlfriends was extremely uncomfortable around my cousin. And I started to realize the power of silence. I just I just remember feeling the um the conflict of wanting acceptance and wanting truth wanting to be proud of my love for my black cousins and still wanting friends and um feeling scared that i would lose my friends if i was open about my love for my cousins my father basically raised me from about when i was about 4 or 5 things sort of started out normal or trying to have a family and a house and then my mother was hospitalized when I was 4 or 5. They didn't talk about what was going on or whatever, but she was in a mental hospital. She was at County General Los Angeles. That's where she met the man who became my stepfather, who was black, and he was in the mental ward as well. The story on him was that he was a returning prisoner of war from Korea and that he had been tortured. He was the most hopeful person in my life growing up because he was warm and told great stories and that was the only real feeling of I ever had a family was when he, when he and my he and my half brother and my mother were together and that was a place where I could go when I was welcome. My father was pretty upset about being dumped for a black mental patient which is essentially what happened. So I got to listen to him spew, you know, racism about that a lot. I was very aware from age 6 that the world had to change for my family to stay together because I could tell 
just walking down the street, that same street, two different days, people look differently at my mother and all of us, at our family, when my stepfather was in the picture as when he wasn't in the picture. When I first got to college in 1986, the sheriff of, of Jefferson Parish announced publicly that he was going to have his deputies stop every black man driving a rinky-dink car, was the words he used, uh, because he assumed that they were up to no good, again, the words that he used. And, and never had we, as white anti-apartheid activists, made a connection, which was so obvious, of course, to any person of color. To us, it was separate issues. Pretty traditionally, if you had five black men together at any given time, there was a cop. The black fraternities, they would present their pledges. And I think it was within like 10 minutes of them just lining up, you know, walking in their row, showing up, cops were there. And they didn't break it up, they just stood. I went to a conference on racism and there was a black woman who was a professor in a college and she said, I wake up every single morning of my life and think, I am a black person. And I thought, God, what would that be like? And she said, how many of you wake up every morning and think, I am a white person? I have understood more and more um, the thousand little cuts of everyday living for people. We would go into a store together and instantly the clerks would become aware of his presence and begin to follow him around the store. Then they paid no attention to me. Once I got stopped for speeding outside the town in the there was a, a Mexican-American girl with me, and uh, I didn't get a ticket. And the cop walked back to his car, and I said, Narda, I really feel bad. What if this had been you or your brother? And she said, yeah. <laughs> he and I were driving, uh, uh, not in the same car, but caravanning down to Chicago from Milwaukee to do, strangely enough, a multicultural training that we both do together now. And we were traveling along at freeway speeds, 65, 70 miles an hour, until we hit the city limits of Skokie, Illinois. He was behind me, and all of a sudden, he slowed up dramatically. He started going 50 miles an hour, and the speed zone was 55. We got outside of Skokie. He sped up again. When we got to the place to do the workshop, you know, I, I said, what was that about? And he turned to me and he said, you just don't get it, Rick. Uh, Skokie is where the KKK meets every year and has a rally. They arrest people just for the crime of driving while black. And I have to be very careful when I drive through a city like that. Being raised in a nice white liberal home where your mother gets a racist teacher fired, you come to understand racism, like a lot of white folks, as this very obvious, overt manifestation of bigotry, and you don't see yourself perpetuating that, and therefore you separate yourself from the problem, even when you're manifesting the problem. One of the things we don't talk about very much is the pathology of white people. The P word is not used very regularly, but there's a real pathology there that somehow we were able, it's like, um, compartmentalization at its worst, that white people could go to church in the morning 
and then go to a lynching in the afternoon and not ever think that those two things were in conflict. Here I was in Louisiana, having just graduated from college, and I was involved in the fight against David Duke when he ran for the United States Senate and for governor. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching six out of ten white people in the state of Louisiana vote for someone they know to be a Nazi. And this is not a word I use hyperbolically. This is truly what he is. And six out of ten white people basically look at themselves and they go, hmm, Nazi. Yeah, but I like his stand on welfare. And I like his stand on affirmative action. And I like the fact that he doesn't like black people is essentially the subtext of all of that. And so they go and they vote for him. And when you see that, you begin to realize that there's really something sick, something at the level of a pestilence that is in your community that is literally sapping the ability of your people, so-called, to think critically and to analyze and to realize what they are doing. And when you begin to see that, you see that your community is dying, literally dying spiritually to be able to go and vote for someone like this and that you have to save them and you have to save you because really what separates me from those 60%. I felt guilty about the history, things that had happened in the past and and about some things in the present, too, definitely. And even though I knew my family wasn't even here, I had nothing to do with slavery, I had nothing to do with colonialism. And some people think, well, why bother? It, all you're going to get out of this experience is pain. This, I mean, thinking about these issues, it's, it's deeply disturbing. It's, you're filled with shame. You're filled with guilt. You can, you can hardly bear to look at the history. It's unbearable. So why would I even bother? What's the point? I know it's horrible. I feel bad about it. I wish it hadn't happened. What else am I supposed to do, you know? What is the legitimate role of white folks in social justice and race and related to race issues and racism? How do we find a line that is, I mean, legitimate, authentic work? My initial motivation, actually, when I went, got this job teaching was I wanted to teach these white kids that they were racist. Okay, that's another stage in white identity development. You want to blame your own group. It's the way, of, in other words, the way I connect with some sense of purity in myself is by rejecting my own community, which is the white community. And, you, and we see white people caught in that. In other words, I, I have established my goodness by being embedded in a black community, Hispanic community, Asian, Native community. And I also uh, demonstrate my distance from whiteness by rejecting my own group. I had very much had the feeling of, but I'm not racist, and I've never done anything to hurt anyone, and therefore um, the, the assumption that comes with being white and having the automatic in is that you assume that if you're a good person, somehow people are going to automatically know that about you. And that was probably the next step is learning that people didn't automatically know that about me. My early religious upbringing actually developed in me some kind of consciousness around wanting to serve. So it's pretty much coming from, I think, serving the underprivileged, which is, you know, a very paternalistic notion as I look at it now. From the position of privilege, as long as you can see that as disadvantage and not even as advantage, you don't, you don't critique or analyze your own advantage, you just look at disadvantage, then there's no fundamental reason to question the relationship. You can be comfortable in that relationship of helping the other, and the other stays other. In college, I once went to a 
an event, and I approached a young um, African-American male who had spoken very beautifully at this gathering, and, and I said, I want to help. How can I help? You know, how can I help promote change and equality for African-Americans and for all people of color? And he just turned to me and he said, educate your own people. And I had a couple feelings there. One, I felt rejected at first. And I felt sad because I felt like there wasn't really a way for me to help. I wanted to be part of his group because it seemed more likely that they would work with me. I think we can all be bigots. I think being a bigot is an equal opportunity phenomenon. But in order to create a system or systemic institutionalized privilege, you have to have prejudice plus the power to institutionalize that prejudice, to put it into laws, to put it into actions, policies, procedures. You've been listening to Mirrors of Privilege, making whiteness visible or making contact. This show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcast, go to radioproject.org or like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to the film, Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible. I was actually just talking to my daughter the other day, the 12-year-old, about white privilege. And she said, well, what are, what's this research you're doing, Mom? And I said, well, it's on white privilege. Well, what is that? And it's like, okay, how am I going to explain this to this 12-year-old? And I have this student from, that was an old student of mine from Ripon, Leighton. Leighton used to take care of our house. And I said, okay, you know Leighton, right. I have to warn the neighbors that Leighton's taking care of the house so that when they see this large black man going to my house that he belongs there. I said, you don't have to explain to people when you walk up the street to take care of the friend's cat. That's white privilege. In 1980, I had read two essays by black women who had lined it out just like a given. White women are oppressive to work with. And I remembered reading those essays with astonishment. Uh, They were so factual about it. White women are oppressive to work with. And I had two thoughts in in 1980, and I still remembered them. Uh, One was, I don't see how they can say that about us. I think we're nice. And second, which is outright racist, but this is where I was in 1980, I especially think we're nice if we work with them. Then I thought, did we fill the reading lists and the programs and women's studies with white people stuff? And at first I said, maybe. And then I said, yes. And I asked myself, if I have anything I didn't earn by contrast with my African-American friends in this building, show me. And I had to pray on it. And I asked my unconscious mind to answer my question. And after three months, 46 examples had swum up, most of them in the middle of the night. And if I didn't flick on a light and write them down, they'd be gone by morning because I didn't want to know them. They were messing up my view of myself as a person who'd earned everything I had. The pain is about understanding how very deep racism is and how deeply, deeply embedded in our systems it is. 
But I think what's hard is for those people whose families came from Russia in 1958 or those families who didn't grow up in the South and people who came from those families who, in fact, were good white liberals and believed that they were doing good things, that it's very difficult to understand how we benefit every day from our whiteness. David Wellman's definition of racism, system of advantage based on race. And my students read to that point, and then they stop because they get mad. Well, I'm not racist. I keep saying that's not what it says. It says that you benefit from a system by being white. They can't look beyond to the system. When you're raised in an isolated place where you don't see people of color, therefore you're not going to see the mistreatment that is meted out to people of color. And to a white person who can just watch TV, read a newspaper, and see who's making it and who's not disproportionately, they will then draw their own conclusions and say, well, it's not racism, because I was told if you want to make it, you can. If you didn't make it, you didn't try hard enough. And I look around and I see these folks on the top and I see these folks on the bottom. It must be something about them. It becomes very logical, albeit flawed. I mean, it's wrong, but it's very logical to come to that conclusion. I get frustrated with the people who, when we've talked and talked and talked about white privilege, turn around and say, well, what about black privilege? And I talk about the foot race. And a lot of them will get it when I talk about the foot race. That the goal is not to take people of color and move them in front of whites. That the goal is to put everybody on an equal starting line so that everybody has an equal opportunity to get to the finish line. That that's what affirmative action is supposed to do. And then I also explain that it's been 40 years. How many years of discrimination are we trying to overturn? And you've only given it 40 years. They're making a mountain out of a molehill. They're exaggerating. They're hypersensitive. They make everything about race. All of those comments are about being able to have been in this white space for all your life and never have to think about how that was a racialized space so that when a person of color brings up racism to most white people, particularly young white people who have no sort of historical memory of race, let alone contemporary understanding, to them it's like, well, race wasn't in the room until you brought it up, right? Race was not a problem until the black person says it or the Latino says it or the Asian Pacific Islander or the indigenous person brings it up. Then race is in the room because they've, again, never had to think of their space as racialized space because they don't know the stories of their own parents. How did their parents get that house? It's very challenging. People get really threatened by the notion that they have a privilege because I think, it, again, it makes them feel guilty. And, they, you know, they want to feel good. They want to feel, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Why are you saying this about me? America is no, the no, greatest no, don't place to live. Me. No, 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 America don't misunderstand me. Look, I'm a good person. America I'm not a racist. No, 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 don't misunderstand me. My family had nothing. My family had nothing. My grandfather came to this country without a shirt on his back. My family worked hard. At this white privilege conference in Iowa last year, there was a conversation I had with a young man, and the workshop was on reparations. And so and when, when the presentation part was done and we were ready to have this discussion, the young man did all the typical things. Even though all these people of color in the room had just discussed their own experiences with racism and how severe it was and how significant it was and how reparations were justified and, and needed, and his, in spite of all of that testimony, he then proceeded to say, you know, I think that anybody can make it in this country if they try hard enough. We all stand on our own two feet, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, this is the greatest country on earth. Stop! It's not the same. 
doesn't have a clue. And he's been led to believe this, and his life is this way. I mean, in his world, you work hard, you do get ahead for the most part, because that's the world he's in. He's not dealing with the class barriers. He's not dealing with the race barriers. So at the end of his soliloquy about how you know, racism isn't really all that bad, I just simply looked at him. I asked him to look around the room at the faces of people of color who had just expressed to him what their truth was. And I simply asked him, you know, what do you think it would mean if these people in the room know their reality better than you know their reality? People say things to me like, oh, that's so cool. You're interested in, in race. I'm really into animal rights. I don't feel that race or being interested in the subject of race is a cause. It's part of becoming fully human in our culture, and it is a choice that white people can make because they have that privilege to choose to partake in it, to participate in it or not. But I think it, after a certain point, as our awareness and our consciousness about this issue grows, we'll realize it's, is it really a choice? If it was just about winning an election and helping somebody, you might say, this is tough, i got to stop. But at some point when you realize, no, you don't really have an option, you may think you have an option, but in real spiritual terms and even physical terms you don't, then you just keep doing it. At the end of the road, there, there's, there's beauty, there's freedom, there's enlightenment, and that the pain is always worth it. It's always worth it. You don't want to dwell on it, and you don't want to stay there. You want it to lift you up. I come to think of myself as a white privileged person and how do I help other white privileged people acknowledge it and become conscious of it. And not in a guilt producing way, but in a way that really helps them see that, they, that they're part of a system that um, teaches them to be this way. And how do you overcome this kind of teaching whether it's becoming hum, a hum, more humble person, but I would say it's becoming a more active person, a person who can convey some of those messages to other people, and that it's not wrong to be a white privileged woman because that's what I am and I'm here. And, but it, it conveys a responsibility. I realize that I cannot live in this wildly multicultural society that we're part of. Um, if I'm constantly judging, hating, ignoring, putting down people that are different than me. If white people don't stand up and don't learn to be allies to people of color, we definitely are going to have a very, very difficult time ever attaining anything even remotely resembling a just community. And we may not get there anyway. I mean, it's very possible that racism will never be you know, sort of fully eradicated from this or any other society, but we are certain that it won't be if we don't do the work. And so given that choice between the absolute guarantee of defeat and the possibility, however remote, of justice and, and reclaiming your humanity, I'm going to opt for that and do whatever it is that needs to be done to increase the odds that by the time you know, I'm taken out of this place, um, that, I will, you know, that, I, that I'll be able to look my children and my grandchildren in the eye and say something to them and give them something meaningful. It's about intimacy across lines that society doesn't want crossed. And with a human being that everything in society wants you not to be present with because there's power in, in that connection. Intimacy is this radical concept that when we can get there either as allies 
across our lines that, that have been so inculcated from such an age. There is power to change the world with that. There's incredible power. that's it for this edition of Making Contact. You were listening to audio from the documentary, Mirrors of Privilege, Making Whiteness Visible. It was produced and directed by Dr. Shakti Butler in association with World Trust. We have more about this film at our website, including information about the producers, participants, and World Trust. That's at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Sonia Green, Monica Lopez, Salima Himarani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.